I go there very often, I've noticed like the hike in the prices. Like it's unreal to me how much IKEA prices have gone up in the past couple of years. Really? Yes. So in like in what way? Like the all the furniture is going up or the Everything accessories is going up. Even the even the base floor. Yes. I th- personally, okay. you know, again as a person who likes to, you know, peruse peruse around IKEA on a regular basis. It's like I was there and like simple pillows are now like twenty five dollars. I feel like, like everything what? has gone up. Oh, everything has, that's for sure. Inflation is crazy. But mm-hmm. when you notice it at a specific store, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know, just like little things. I was like, oh, like this would be where I would go for like a cheap XYZ. And now it's not that way anymore. There's there are no such thing as cheap anything. Cheap <laughs> things at Ikea. But it's like, I don't know. But I also think the market for cheap home furnishings has also really broadened. That's in the true. Past that's years. true. So, so there's, there's more, more competition. competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jinx. We Jinx. know all about economies. Jinx. <laughs> uh, but we're not here to talk about furniture and Ikea. No. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. Mm-hmm. And it's not dry January anymore. Yay. Not even dry-ish January. <laughs> and uh, February's for lovers or is that Virginia? Both. Both. Yeah, I think both. <laughs> you got to you got to stay close in February. And it's you cold. got us a pink drink. Yes. <laughs> it's this so is cute. It's I like red that. It's and a pink. Valentine's Day colored drink. It's beautiful. <laughs> and I have a love story to tell tonight. So Ooh. everything is going so well. <laughs> well, you're How picking out <laughs> roses. What yeah. kind of what color roses? Because when you get this, it is going to be like Thursday the eighth. Yeah, something so like that. So you Valentine's are, Day is coming. You're up. rolling in. You've got to decide. Are you going friendship with yellow? Are you going like purity with white? Or are you like really gonna go for it? Are Long you going red? Red rose, which I, I would disagree with. No, don't do that. Go with the one that like just give her daisies. <laughs> and nice bouquet of flowers like fun flower like i'm i i feel bad but i'm just not a rose person i'm not a rose person but i do love the roses that change colors as they mm. get closer to the end of the petal and i think long stem roses look so fake i like those big bulbous roses i don't know why they're so tight let them open up like <laughs> roses are meant to bloom and open up i don't know why we're selling right. these tight fucking roses it's like it's in infuriating to me so you are infuriated at your florist right now yeah so you don't have time to look these women up um (laughs) so we're gonna describe them for you (laughs) we're gonna get a little physical physical Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing june carter cash which i think when most people picture june these days they picture reese witherspoon because she obviously won an oscar for portraying june in walk the line which is a like incredible movie mm-hmm. um but june in real life has these kind of close set eyes not super close set but enough mm-hmm. that you're like huh and she is they're icy blue she has big features mm-hmm. like she's got a big mouth and a big smile a little bit of a cleft chin brown hair that's always like back there's no part there's lots of hairspray yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot going on with her big country grand old opry hair um and she is just fun to look at but my personal 
favorite photo of her is one that's become more popular just this year hmm. because a new documentary came out about her, which I had the privilege of watching. <laughs> and the cover photo is kind of her outside in this um, button-down, like, burgundy to deep red shirt where her arms are just kind of thrown up behind her mm. head. She looks so carefree and not done up. Mm -hmm. Because she was on stage from such a young child, she just always looked done up. And this photo, like, it just, like, stops my heart. She's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, she is. Okay. So beautiful. Yeah. So is Reese Witherspoon, though. So, yes. yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny, go. too, because when you're physically describing her, like, you know, big features, and I'm like, blue eyes. It is. Like it Reese Witherspoon, is. Reese Witherspoon <laughs> does look like her. It was great, yeah. great casting. I'm going to show you the picture in a second. Yeah. You tell me who you're doing. So I am doing Agnes Varda. Good. Agnes is a petite woman who is half Greek, half French. She has a very round, squished face and large, dark eyes um, that are kind of wide set, a little cat-like, and they're perfectly accompanied by long, dark eyebrows. She has pretty much always the exact same haircut. <laughs> it is a styled bowl cut. Aunt Patsy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Aunt Patsy has a bob. Aunt Patsy has a classic bob. Uh, when she was young, it and, the, and she, it is literally a bowl around oh, her head. Yes, like I mean, such a true bowl cut. And when she was young, it was her natural black hair. But in her older years, she developed a very unique signature style. Where the top, like if you were to picture like a monk's head, like this would be the bald area, that was just pure white. And then the bottom half of the bowl was deep red. So it literally looks exactly like our cocktail this it's year. It's like Billie Eilish with her green <laughs> yes. and then the black. But a bowl cut. <laughs> but exactly a bowl. I bet Billie Eilish is daring enough to do it. Oh, she would. Yeah, she totally this would. This is the picture of June. <gasps> oh, my God goodness yeah they use that for the cover of her documentary i was like excuse me excuse me that's a great photo i know i freaking mm. love it all right well do you want to know what you're drinking it better this not have hair in it. <laughs> it better not have hair in it katie god all right yes i would love to know so this is called pre-wave and it is light rum cherry juice pineapple juice vanilla simple syrup and cardamom and you top it with whipped cream of course <laughs> cheers mm. Mm. wow it's like a cherry pie it is it's like a cherry oh pie gosh. it has mm. a little bit of like a um wow it tastes so much like cherry pie <laughs> it has a little bit of like a sangria-esque yeah. to it because of the cardamom gives it that little mm -hmm. spice on top mm -hmm. of the alcohol mm -hmm. i really like that <laughs> i really like this cocktail mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. gives her miney vibes anytime i drink something with cream on top mm. i just picture the scene with ron like telling her she has stuff on her face and her mm -hmm. being so embarrassed <laughs> and then i'm like ah oh, to be young yep. how terrible it was yep. <laughs> Being in your 30s is the best. You like it so far? Yeah. Good. I do. I mean, you know. It's only been a couple person months. Person per personally, personally, no. <laughs> <apart>. um, <laughs> that's not funny. But <laughs> the, the things that are falling apart have, like, nothing to do with age, you know. Right. And frankly, I'm handling them much better, I think, because I'm 30. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it really does feel like so many things in my life are just absolutely crumbling. <laughs> um, and I'm like. Okay, got I still this. gotta like get up, <laughs> do my, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm still like getting my shit done, and like you know, even though like things are not okay. So, anyways, um, sounds like a Patreon <laughs> conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
What do you know about Agnes Varda? Uh, all I know is that she's like a, I, I think maybe a writer, but definitely in film. Like she did things with films, but I don't know what like big filmy things. And I think that's why she kind of looks so weird and artsy. Mm-hmm. She's a weird and artsy person. Mm-hmm. So that's all I know. So tell me about her and her life. I'm excited. All right. Perfect. So I got most of this from really like Wikipedia. And there was like an Agnes Varda website um, that I got a little bit of information from. But really, like, there's not a whole lot on her personal life. And a lot of her story really is focused around, like, her work. And I also want to just say that, like, I am not an expert in artsy French films. You're not? As much as I would have loved to be that girl (laughs) in college, I was not. You're wearing black and white stripes Um, tonight. I I am wearing Breton stripes. (laughs) I didn't even realize that. I do look very Parisian tonight. And I'm wearing black Um, and white polka dots. I was looking at us in the interview camera, and I was like, we look insane. We look insane. (laughs) You look so dumb right now. (laughs) That's probably what the author was thinking. That's exactly what Um, she thought. (laughs) Standing outside Um, my house. But yeah, so I'm going to be talking a lot about French film and the French new wave of cinema. <laughs> and C- I'm cinema. cinema. And I need you to know that I do not know what I'm talking about. Perfect. This was largely copy and pasted from Wikipedia. I love that. So please. I mean, I know that our dear friend Charles Vincent probably knows a lot about this. I'm yeah. just, I don't know that for sure. But we, I know it for y- sure. We know, <laughs> but I know it for sure. But but I know so it for Charles, sure. Charles Charles always has so much patience for us, and he gives us the best information yes. on Instagram after we post something. Yes. He'll like break down the episode point for point. So if you're ever curious, just go to the picture <laughs> of the episode on Instagram, and Charles will give you a breakdown of what we got wrong, what we got right, and what he appreciates about us. Yes, <laughs> how kind Charles. How we kind. love you, Charles. Still waiting on that fan art. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So let's get into it. Agnes Varda was born Arlette Varda on May 30th, 1928 in Brussels, Belgium. Ooh. Her father, Eugene Jean Varda. Wow. A little repetitive. <laughs> uh, he was an engineer from a family of Greek refugees from Asia Minor in the Ottoman Empire. And her mother, Christiane, was from Sete, France. She was the third of five children, and other than that, we really don't know too much about her childhood. Um, in 1940, when she was 12 years old, her family escaped Belgium wow. and fled to the small French coastal town of Sete, where her mother was from. Shit, what timing? I know. <laughs> they saw the writing on the wall, and they're yeah, like, we yeah, gotta yeah, get yeah. out of here. <laughs> sure. Um, she lived on a boat with her family and became friends with a sculptor named Valentine Schlegel. This friendship would continue for the rest of her life. When she was 18 years old, she legally changed her name to Agnes and went off to Paris to further her education. She attended the Lycee, Lycee, <laughs> again, god damn it, sometimes I like really find the pronunciation and sometimes I forget to. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Lycee? Lycee. <laughs> I like that. Lycee. That was my favorite college. one of the three. <laughs> Victor Dure. <laughs> And she received a bachelor's degree in literature and psychology from the Sorbonne. But this was not what she was meant to do. 
She called her relocation to Paris truly excruciating, saying it gave her a frightful memory of my arrival in this gray, inhumane, sad city. Whoa! Yeah, she did not like it. I thought Paris was for lovers. Here we are. (laughs) But she just, like, didn't get along with her fellow students and called classes at the Sorbonne stupid, antiquated, (gasps) abstract, and scandalously unsuited for the lofty needs one had at that age. Whoa. So really, I think what was going on was she was just like not in the right situation in Paris. You know, I feel like this would be if like you were meant to be a film major and you found yourself in like, what, it, what is the, not general studies, what, like media studies. What is that thing that like all communications? communications <laughs> yes. The degree that we should have yes. to do this podcast. Yes. <laughs> It's not, and I'm not saying it is like a bad degree or anything. Like so many people put it to good use, but like I feel like it would be like if you were like an avant-garde artist and you were in a communications major. Absolutely, yeah. which I totally understand because if you put me in the avant-garde world, I would be lost, flailing. Yeah, I would feel like such an imposter because I would just be copying other people's exactly. shit. Yeah. Um, But Agnes was not a copier. She was very much her own person. So she changed her mind. She was like, I want to become a museum curator. So then she studied art history at the Ecole du Louvre. That's my secret wish. Museum curator. That would be such a dream job. And I would want to walk around in heels. So I clicked when it was like dark. Mm -hmm. And then like a guy would break into the museum to try to steal Mm -hmm. the art. And we'd fall madly in love. Mm, I love it. I always wanted to do that, like, art restoration where, like, the people have, like, the little Q-tips. And oh, yeah, I have no like, patience for that. Oh, I would love it. We could work together. We could. Let's and open you up could marry an art forger, <gasps> and I can marry a thief. I love it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. Get Casey and Jake to change their entire lives. I think they could both do it. I think they could, too. I mean, here we are. Obviously, <laughs> one of them has criminal experience. <laughs> uh, I won't say which one. And one of them can charm people into stealing shit. Uh, so anyways, so she is studying art history. And then she changes her mind again. And she was like, I don't want to study art that already exists. I want to make art. So she studies photography at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. After her training, she took odd jobs here and there. She said, I started earning a living from photography straight away, taking trivial photographs of families and weddings to make money, but I immediately wanted to make what I called compositions. And it was with these that I had the impression that I was doing something where I was asking questions with composition, form, and meaning. Hmm. So she started working as a photographer for the Theater Festival of Avignon while also taking her own artistic photos and developing her style. Then in 1951, her friend Jean Villard opened the Theater National Populaire and hired Agnes as its official photographer. So she worked at this theater for 10 years from 1951 until 1961, during which time her reputation grew and she eventually obtained photojournalist jobs like throughout Europe. So she's working at this theater. She's traveling all over, taking photos, selling her photographs. She's like truly making a living off of being a photographer. But all the while, she's also interested in moving her still photographs to the film world. She didn't really know much about films. She didn't grow up watching movies. Um, By the time she was 25, she had seen like maybe 20 movies. Um, And I think that this is actually going to play into her strengths because she would become known for her film's unique qualities. 
and would even predate a whole genre of filmmaking, which we'll get into. Um, but I think like she's going in without any baggage. Like we said, she's not trying to copy anyone because she doesn't really know what anyone know did. what anyone else is doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so good. Being undereducated sometimes yeah. or underexperienced, not undereducated, being underexperienced in a field sometimes makes you like a wild card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's nice. It is nice. So when she's 26 years old, she goes back to her hometown of Sete to visit a terminally ill friend. And while she's there, she's taking still shots of this small fishing village. And she starts to wonder how these pictures would translate into a film. So without any training, <laughs> she decides to shoot a feature film with artistic help from her old pal in her neighborhood, the sculptor Valentino. This movie was called La Pointe Courte. The plot of the movie was inspired by William Faulkner's The Wild Palms, and it told the story of a young couple who was trying to save their failing marriage within the confines of a struggling fishing village. Agnes later said, there are two present themes in the film, with the first being a couple reconsidering their relationship and a village that is trying to resolve several collective problems of survival. The film ran for 86 minutes with a budget of $14,000, and that was literally only to like rent the equipment. No cast or crew members were paid during the production. And there were only two professional actors. So that meant that most of the people featured in the film were just the residents of the town. Which actually Agnes preferred because it gave the movie a more realistic feeling. And it blended the lines between fiction and documentary. So the struggle between this couple is crafted. But the struggles of this village were very real. And like, how are we surviving in, you know, post-World War II France as like when like things are rapidly changing? So it's a really interesting, like, it's like a, a movie set within a documentary. So this is like a historical fiction. Yeah. Like she's, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that's really cool. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, the film was first screened at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 1955, and it's it premiered in Paris in 1956 at the Studio Parnasse. The film was immediately praised um, by Cachère du Cinéma. Um, André Bazin said, There is a total freedom to the style which produces the impression so rare in the cinema that we are in the presence of a work that obeys only the dreams and desires of its auteur, with no other external obligations. Francois Truffaut, Truffaut called it an experimental work, ambitious, honest, and intelligent. Even though the film was praised, it was a financial failure, <laughs> and only left Agnes with enough money to make short films for the next few years, including a few documentary shorts. Well, I feel like most really big artistic movements mm -hmm. do start without making any money, right? Yeah. Like oh, that's for sure. You've changed the dime so much that it's, people aren't going to pay to see it. It's not pop culture. It's weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, like we're in the era of like big studio movies. Like you go see a Paramount film, mm -hmm. not an Agnes Varda film. You know, we're not really at that stage quite yet, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but so it's especially hard for a young, like truly, truly independent filmmaker to like get her work out there. Well, it's the golden age of Hollywood. Exactly. Like, th you know, we're not, we're like just over into the Great Depression era, mm -hmm. but those, th I mean, the films of like the, the, who am I even thinking of? 
Ginger Rogers yeah. and like the really fancy Marilyn Monroe. She's like a little later, but mm-hmm. movies that are based around movie stars rather than like famous directors. Right. You know, nobody um, cares who's storytelling yet. Right. It's actually, I heard this really interesting argument recently where someone was saying that there are no true movie stars anymore. And people were like, well, no, like Margot Robbie is a movie star. And they were like, well, but you don't go to a movie just because it has Margot Robbie in it anymore. They're like, people used to go to see an Ingrid Bergman film. You know, they used to go and see a Cary Grant film just because he was in it. And like, just because like, like they loved those people so much. And right. Like if Margot Robbie's in a film that you're not interested in, like it doesn't fucking matter. Right. Like you're not going to I'm see I'm not going it. to see Matt Damon for no reason. Right. Ex- exactly. Do you know and what I it's turning into? Interesting concept it's so much more like stage plays like Mm. people would follow like tennessee williams and it'd be like i'm gonna go to every play that tennessee williams Mm -hmm. writes and now that's what it's like it's like okay greta gerwig you did a great little women now i want to go see barbie because Mm -hmm. your interpretation of women is something i appreciate yeah so it's very much become i think because um episodic television shows have become more more important Mm -hmm. movies are becoming theater I, that's a really interesting point, and I like that. I agree with it. Yeah. I come up with one or two every <laughs> now and then. <laughs> Occasionally. Let us know what you think. Occasionally <laughs> I say something wise. <laughs> um, da, 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 da. Okay. So this film that she made, La Pointe Court, is doing more kind of behind the scenes than she realized. So it is unofficially but widely considered the first film of the French new wave of cinema. So Nouvelle Vogue is a French art film movement that emerged in the late 50s. The movement was characterized by its rejection of traditional filmmaking conventions in favor of experimentation and a spirit of iconoclasm. I don't even know what that word means. Sounds great, though. But it sounds really good. (laughs) (laughs) New wave filmmakers explored new approaches to editing, visual style, and narrative, as well as engagement with the social and political upheavals of the era, often making use of irony or exploring existential themes. So one of the things I was watching about the, this like new wave is they were like, they were using cuts in a very like different way. Like normally in a traditional film, like you'd be watching a movie and then like, they're driving somewhere, it cuts, they arrive to the destination. And like this one, they're like, you know, they're like cutting like while people are talking and like in like weird moments where like you wouldn't mm. expect it. And like they're covering like different angles and like, or they're like, well, we don't have to show them <laughs> driving to the place. Like they can just arrive. Like right. they're kind of cutting out like unnecessary scenes. Get rid well. of the transitions, please. <laughs> exactly. Um, So the new wave is often considered one of the most influential movements in the history of cinema because it was truly marked. uh, It truly marked the beginning of film being a way of expressing an artistic vision. So, again, rather than making a Paramount picture, you would make a Hitchcock film. And that meant something different. And they even had a phrase for it. They called it a camera pen. Um, This referred to the camera being more of an active tool and them using the camera to put their own artistic mark rather than just like, oh, yeah, the camera's there and it's capturing the thing. It's like they're 
literally taking the camera off of the pedestal, putting it in their hands, mm-hmm. and like using it in a very specific way. This um, is very interesting mm-hmm. because we just watched Snatch with my daughters. Oh. I know. Love that movie. I know. <laughs> and I was explaining that I was like, there's going to be a lot of characters, but it's a Guy Ritchie movie. So he's going to pause it and put their names on the screen. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, what does that mean? And then I was trying to explain to them. I was like, OK, so like Guy Ritchie, that's like his signature. That's the thing he does. And then we talked about Martin Scorsese. And I was like, when you say it's a Scorsese film, he'll show you the answer at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you backtrack and do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So this is the development of that. Yes. This is like the... It's it's a new wave of like associating films via like director a directing style. Got it. Yeah. So Excuse me, M Night Shyamalan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a book um, about education, by the way, which was really crazy. <laughs> crazy book. It's called <laughs> Never Mind. Move on. Move along. Um. So the new wave was also an artistic movement that was practical. So the bare bones element of handheld cameras and shooting on locations, you know. Like, it made filmmaking cheaper and more interesting, which is funny because when we think of shooting on location, we think very expensive. Right. But back then, they weren't blocking off the streets and, like, making everyone sign waivers and da-da-da-da-da. It's like they are literally just taking the cameras out and shooting it because that was cheaper than, like, finding a big studio and making a bunch of sets. Like, they're just like, why don't we just go to a beautiful Parisian apartment rather than making one on this fucking sound, like, soundstage? Soundstage, Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it also like it made it feel more real because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, yeah, like we are actually like on the streets of Paris, not a back lot that yeah. we made look like <laughs> streets of Paris. But the lighting is all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the sun is setting in the wrong place, James Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> so Agnes is known as the grandmother of the French New Wave because her film predates the official start, which came with movies such as Hiroshima Mon Amour in 1959 and Breathless and Le Bonne Femme in 1960. So these are the types of films that people spoof when we talk about French films. <laughs> and you would absolutely recognize stills from these movies. And like there are just these iconic moments that, again, are kind of made fun of now because you're like, oh, what a cliche. But like for them, this was a totally new, cool way of doing films. And like I think that's why it's become so... I don't know, like able to be spoofed because it was such a specific style. And like these guys had gotten together and they were like, these are the rules of the new French wave. And like, this is how you make a new French wave film. (laughs) And a lot of those elements that they had set these rules for were present in Agnes's film. Hmm. And she was like, this is like a total boys club, you know, that like they're like, these are the fathers of the new French wave. And people were like, well, she was doing it like <laughs> years, years ago. Years <laughs> ago. Excuse me. So, anyways, now that the wave is in full force, Agnes steps into the full length film sphere again with her film Cleo from Five to Seven. The film follows a young pop star, Florence, mostly known by her artistic name, Cleo. Uh, so, it follows her from 5 p.m. on June 21st until 6 30 p.m. that evening. And she's just going about her day, but she's waiting to hear the results of a medical test that will possibly confirm if she has, like, a cancer or not. So the film is superficially about a woman coming to terms with her mortality, which is a very common trope for Agnes. But on a deeper level, Cleo from 5 to 7 confronts the traditionally objectified 
woman by giving Cleo her own vision. So she can't be constructed through the gaze of others, which is often represented through a motif of reflections and Cleo's ability to strip her body of the, you know, to be looked at attributes such as clothing or wigs. But she's, it seems like she's going through the film being like, you know what, I don't really give a shit anymore because like I might be dying by the end of this, you know, and kind of shedding off those like, how do I see myself? Again, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I saw a lot of clips of it, you know, and this was kind of what I was reading about it. Um, but this movie is now considered a classic of the genre. And it is when you see pictures of this movie, it's just like this beautiful blonde French woman looking very chic all over Paris with these cool outfits and sunglasses and, you know, smoking cigarettes and like, <laughs> you know, it's very iconic. So this is now considered a classic, but between 1968 and 1970, she actually left France and she lived in Los Angeles and she made a Hollywood hippie movie called Lion's Love. And apparently she was the first director during this time period to become interested in a young man named Harrison Ford. No. And she was like, you should be getting more work. Um, he really should. And then he did. And then he did. And then he, and then he still does. Yes. What? He's still getting work just now. So she also met Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, during this time. And I call him Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy for short. <laughs> I love that the article I was reading was like, the Lizard King, Jim Morrison. I was like, excuse me. What does that mean? Like, apparently he like called himself the Lizard King at some point. Wow. Crazy. I, would, I, so, feel like, I feel like like Crocodile Hunter should do that. Not Jim Morrison. Not Jim Morrison. <laughs> um, Crocodile so. Dundee, the Lizard King. Um, and yeah, they apparently became so close that she was one of the few people to attend his funeral in Paris. Whoa. Yeah. In 1977, she founded her own production company, Cine Tamaris, in order to have more control over shooting and editing. Her first film with her new production company was One Sings, The Other Doesn't. This focuses on two women over the span of 14 years during the women's movement of 1970s France. Agnes herself was a supporter of the women's movement, and she was one of the 343 women to have signed the Manifesto of the 343. And this was a manifesto where 343 women admitted to having an abortion. And this was really brave because it made them vulnerable to possible prosecution when it was illegal. Mm. So she signed this and then she went back to live in Los Angeles from 1979 to 81. And during that time, she made two documentaries, um, Murmurs and The Documentor. Then in 1985, she made another critical work, Vagabond. So this is a drama about the death of a young female drifter named Mona. Vagabond is considered one of her greater feminist works because of how the film deals with the de-fetishization. <laughs> That's a hard word. It is a very hard word. female body uh, from the male perspective. So her work is often considered feminist because of her use of female protagonists and her creation of a female cinematic voice. She said, I'm not at all a theoretician of feminism. I did all that, my photos, my craft, my film, my life, on my terms, my own terms, and not to do it like a man. She was also involved with other social movements, so back in 1968, she'd even made a documentary short about the Black Panther movement in Oakland, California, which is super interesting. And she also touches on taboo subjects, 
like her 1988 film Kung Fu Master, which is about a middle-aged woman who falls in love with her daughter's classmate, a 14-year-old boy, who was oddly enough played by Agnes's own son, Matthew Demi, <laughs> which I don't care for. <laughs> That's odd and weird. It's crazy, especially because like, he was like 15 or 16 when they were filming this. Because hmm. I think he was 16 when the movie came out, so probably 15 when they were filming kind of weird anyways a little more than kind of you know (laughs) i guess (laughs) um so agnes had met fellow french filmmaker jacques demi in 1958 while at a short film festival um and they moved in together the next year and were married in 1962 and they stayed together until his death in 1990 agnes had had one daughter from a previous relationship rosalie who jacques adopted and then they had matthew in 1972 and that's really it for her personal life. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times there's not a lot because people who, especially who work in the film industry, yeah. want to stay private. So, like, if you're not a superstar, you can really hide that shit, mm-hmm. like, really well. <clears throat> and that's okay. Yeah. So, she made so many films that it's really impossible to talk about all of them. But when you need, what you need to know is that Agnes is one of the most well-respected filmmakers of all time. She was a woman in a male-dominated field who was already doing what would end up making those men famous. In 2008, she directed the film The Beaches of Agnes. This was an autobiographical documentary where she visited places that were important to her throughout her life. And she even recreates moments from her childhood with actors, but she's in the scene observing as her older self. Which is a very interesting way to do it. So she's like literally in the shot watching herself as a child experience this thing that like she has written down exactly as she remembers it. Very Hmm. trippy. Um, And then in 2017, she made a movie with French artist J.R. called Faces Places in which the two go on a road trip around uh, rural areas of France. She was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature for this documentary, becoming the oldest nominated person at the show. She was eight days older than fellow nominee James Ivory. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 2019, she made another movie about herself called Varda by Agnes, in which she reflects on her work. She recounts her 60-year artistic journey through photography and filmmaking. She expresses the importance of three key words, inspiration, creation and sharing the film shows varda sitting and reflecting on the things she loves such as her husband cats colors beaches and heart-shaped potatoes because <laughs> apparently there are a lot of oh i i mean i know about just the oval ones no apparently there are a lot of heart-shaped potatoes if, if she loves world. it then i love it <laughs> Agnes Varda died on March 29th, 2019 from cancer. She was 90 years old. And mourners left flowers and potatoes outside of her house. (laughs) That's cute. Her death drew a passionate response from the filmmaking community with Martin Scorsese (laughs) releasing a statement writing, I seriously doubt that Agnes Varda ever followed in anyone else's footsteps in any corner of her life or her art. Every single one of her remarkable handmade pictures so beautifully balanced between documentary and fiction is like no one else's every image every cut what a body of work she left behind movies big and small playful and tough generous and solitary lyrical 
and unflinching and alive. Mm. And that is the legacy that she leaves behind in the world of filmmaking. Good thing I already brought up Scorsese. I know. (laughs) Unplanned. But yeah, and that was the thing. I was like, how much do I go into like these films? Because she made so many movies and documentaries. You can't summarize everyone. I can't summarize that. No one wants me to do that. (laughs) So I tried to hit on the big ones. But you know what people do want? Mm -hmm. What would you want people to leave at your grave? Not heart-shaped potatoes, clearly. You know what? That is a good question for a Patreon conversation. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I already know what I want. I'm going to have to think about that. So, yeah, we're going to talk about that on Patreon. So if you'd like to hear that conversation, you can join for as little as a dollar a month. This is just a little in-between story promo of that. Um, We talk about a ton of fun things, and I think this will be a really interesting conversation. I think it's something everybody has an opinion on. Yeah. For sure. Okay, perfect. All right, well, let's get another drink. We'll be right back. Cocktail time. We are back. Part two, June Carter Cash. I'm so excited to hear her story what a fun person to just be around and research Mm -hmm. like a a piece of americana honestly (laughs) (laughs) don't you think yes i do okay so do you want to know what you're drinking first so this is called press on she loves to say that press on all right let's press on i also like it go do the next thing all i think of is press on nails no (laughs) talk to my daughters about that (laughs) crazy okay so it is bourbon orange bitters orange simple syrup orange liqueur lots of orange okay uh and you shake that in a cocktail shaker and pour it in a coupe glass over top of a sugar cube so there's a sugar cube in the bottom and then inside you put half of an orange slice and a cherry and then you pour a little bit of grenadine perfect cheers Very orangey. So orangey. Mm. Yeah, it tastes like, um, like, you know, like when, we get, when you're going to get like orange drink. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. The orange it, popsicle. Yes. It doesn't taste like orange juice. No. But, it, but yeah, very. I think it needs a little bit more bourbon, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So overdo the bourbon when you make it at home, unless you don't like strong drinks, yeah. in which case just do it like this. Mm. But it is good. Yeah. I like it. All right, tell me what you know about June Carter Cash. I know that she is a very famous country singer in her own right. Yes. Um, I believe she started when she was like a kid. A little like baby, baby Judy girl. Garland yeah, of her. very young. Um, and But unfortunately, she is now mainly known as Johnny Cash's wife. Right. And I believe she wrote Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I that's like really all I know but I do have a funny story about this when um, I was in middle school we were asked to do like a group project on a famous woman and it was the year that walk the line came out and so all the <laughs> all the girls were in one group in my class because there were very few children at my school and all the girls wanted to do June Carter Cash and I was like I don't know who that is I was like that's so stupid and I was like we should do someone like Harriet Tubman or <laughs> whatever <laughs> Um, and so we ended up doing June Carter Cash and it was interesting. Like, I don't remember too much cause I think they 
we're really just going off of her part in the movie. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how much research we actually did on this. I was I was talking today to my friend slash coworker uh-huh. and because this documentary about um June Carter Cash just came out on Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. She's like, every time this commercial comes up, we're just like, she's a badass bitch. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and that's in the first 13 seconds of the documentary. And then Perfect. that like girl never shows back up. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, did you say what this cocktail was called? Oh, yeah. Press on. Oh, that's right. Press on because the press on nails. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So in terms of sources obviously i used wikipedia which is like severely lacking like it has a lot of him it has a lot of information but just a lot of this is the year this album came out and this is the year that album came out so that was kind of sad you Mm -hmm. know like it doesn't give a lot of detailed info but that was great because sometimes when that happens it like forces me to be like really outgoing and i had to find a couple podcast episodes and then that's when i found the paramount plus just released uh, a documentary on Ju- January 16th. Wow. Called what? June. Timing. It just came out. I was no. like, this is a dream. Did you, did you already have Paramount Plus? No, I bought it <laughs> and watched it. Are you going to give it up? No, producer can't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious because I feel like Paramount Plus is like one of the rogue subscriptions. It's crazy. That like It's $5 a month. Come on. It's $5? Well, it was $5.99, so it's $6. Okay, that, with, with, ads, commercials, okay, with commercials. With commercials, yeah. Okay. That's not too bad, actually. I'm just like, there are so many streamers out there that yeah. I feel like Paramount Plus, I'm just like waiting for it to merge with another one. Oh, they will. I oh, they like will. They Come on. <gasps> Jump onto Disney. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Jump on the Disney Hulu's there. already there. Come on. <laughs> Coming onto the hot. The water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually scolding over there, <laughs> which I love. Okay, let me tell you her story. Okay. Those who are familiar with Walk the Line, as of course we talked about, are familiar with a really small chunk of um, the story of June Carter Cash. Because June had this amazing lifelong country story and you are privy to like the moments where June and Johnny fell in love, which are so important. And of course, in February, we're going to talk about this amazing love story. But June is so much bigger than that. Also, most people, like you said, think of June as Johnny Cash's wife because when he was famous, like super famous, he's still famous. Yeah. He was the fifth most recognizable person in the world. Yeah. So like June was with him during all of that. Yeah. I'd also like to say, um, if you haven't listened to this, uh, Johnny Cash has an album of comedic songs that he sings and it is so fucking funny well i also can't wait for you to find out that june is a fucking comedian (gasps) that is like maybe she wrote those songs that's how she started she's so funny she is so funny Mm -hmm. also underappreciated underrated for the fame and talent that she holds on her own Mm -hmm. right as Mm -hmm. most women are when they marry someone famous or when they marry someone at all yeah so Or when they're single or whatever happens. Okay, so June Carter Cash was born Valerie June Cash in Virginia on June 23rd. We love a 23rd girl. 1929. So she's like the same time. Very close. Same time as your your friend. So, Agnes. Her mom is Maybell, who is a country music performer um, with... 
her two like aunts her or her aunt and uncle like the Carter family is a big name in country music in the 1920s and 30s her dad is Ezra Carter he's a huge supporter of the family like he loved that they were in showbiz he himself wasn't but he's kind of like a manager ish so the Carter family are actually the beginnings of country music or pop country music kind of as we know it they like when country music stars around that time got stuck, they would just go back and use a Carter family melody. So if you've wow. you've probably if you've heard one of their songs, you've heard a million of their songs because people just used the hook that they had over and over again. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, her family is very in. Wow. Also, her mom was like the first woman who could professionally slay on a guitar. She That's like cool. could rip <laughs> Dolly Parton's in this documentary. And she was like, I would rub my fingers raw trying to play like Maybelle Carter. That's so cool. Cause didn't June play like, like a, it looks like it looks like a liar. Yes. They all played lots of weird instruments. Yeah. All the mm-hmm. kids, yeah. <laughs> they were all, they were brought up in this nonsense. It's like the Jackson yeah. five, but the Carters. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and, and way less oppressive. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's good. To like hear. the people were like, they were like happy to do it, and good. everybody, everybody's like full happy. <laughs> June was definitely a daddy's girl. She loved riding on the back of his motorcycle with him, Aww. so she loves a bad boy right so off the bat. Cute. Of course, she started performing with the Carter family around the age of ten. It's in the 1930s, and you know, at some point, Maybell, they call her Mama Maybell or Mother Maybell. Everybody called her that in the whole country scene like she is june carter's mom um at some point she stopped performing with her sisters and brothers and was like what if i performed with my daughters because she has Mm. three daughters Mm -hmm. so she starts doing that and it's called the carter sisters and mother maybell and that's all obviously with the encouragement of her husband ezra helen was on the accordion anita is on the bass fiddle and june is on the auto harp Mm. that looks like a liar Mm. and she is the front person and Mm. comedian so she does the talking the emceeing the jokes in between songs the jokes in between sets the group first aired on the radio in richmond virginia so close she's in virginia she she didn't grow up in like the deep south she's in the mid-atlantic baby that's crazy i I know tennessee tennessee Tennessee. Tennessee. (laughs) we all did wow that's where nashville is yeah June was not the best singer in the group, but she had all of the emotion and people would watch and listen to her group for her because she was the family front man. June, who is about 16 years old, the co-announcer for the family group, she does commercials on the radio for flour, for department stores, for whatever they could do because the family is just traveling around and doing show dates from Richmond to Maryland, to Delaware, to Pennsylvania. And then eventually the family starts to expand and they're in like Texas border stations. So she's on the radio in like Spanish speaking communities in the South, Mm -hmm. in Texas and in, you know, Tennessee and like kind of starting to weave her their way along the Bible belt. They would drive for hours and hours and hours just to stop and do four shows all in one day and drive for hours and hours and hours. And these are teenage girls with, like, you know, their mom and dad. Mm. June later said she had to work harder than all of her sisters Mm -hmm. because 
She had her own special talent to foster, which was comedy. And she was the highlight of the show. She had this comedy routine that was a persona. And it was like a trashy honky tonk <laughs> persona. Kind of like Larry the Cable Guy, where yeah. it's not who he actually is. Mm-hmm. But he made a character to be funny. Mm-hmm. And she says, I created that character. It wasn't me. But people thought it was me for a really yeah. long time. Like, they thought I was just being funny. But she honed her craft. She had binders and binders of bits and jokes and things that worked and things that didn't work and everybody who knows june knows that she did that yeah she was like practicing her tight 10 all the time that is so interesting and i love that because i think that people think of comedy as just like you're funny and then you're a comedian it's Mm -hmm. like no if you are a true comedian like you work so fucking hard at it like you're writing all the time and like practicing new material and like trying to keep it all straight in your head like it's a tough job and you have to see what works what doesn't work and you have to like really cater to your audience which is what she was doing and she's going through some pretty like sticky areas to try out new material sticky areas sticky as a woman as a young beautiful woman in a Mm -hmm. weird time in history we're like going into world war ii things Mm -hmm. are rough people need a relief they're in the great depression like she's working in a lot of weird spots yeah well especially like when you're right people are strapped for cash so like they pay their dollar to come see you and like that dollar does not mean fucking nothing to them especially in this area so like you better deliver absolutely (laughs) so much on this young girl's shoulders i know there's a lot (laughs) she's like a teenager so uh, you know, for a long time, her family's all traveling. Some of her uncles join in, her aunts join in, cousins join in. But after they all drop out, it's like 1946. Maybell and her daughters, they're like doing Richmond radio stations. They're moving to Tennessee. They're going and living in Missouri and performing regularly. Their dad, who's the manager, is kind of trying to get them into the Grand Old Opry. Mm. Because that is when you are nationally syndicated, right? Like mm. as a performer. But the Grand Old Opry was like, if you come, you can't bring your lead guitarist because we we have a lead guitarist and we don't want him stepping on each other's toes. So they keep turning down the Grand Old Opry because they're like, we're not going to leave this one guy behind when he's been playing with us for all these years. That makes right. no sense. But this is the dream. So finally, the Opry is like, okay, you're famous enough that we will take <laughs> the Carter people, we will take your guitarist, and we can all do the Opry company together. Okay. So she is now being nationally syndicated mm-hmm. every weekend as a performer on the Grand mm-hmm. Old Opry. And here she meets Carl Smith. Carl Smith is the hot, 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 <laughs> handsome, country singing superstar at this point in American history. And she lands his ass she ends up marrying carl smith and they are the original it couple they look so good together on stage they're both so like prim like cute like when you see them together doing banter on the grand old opry i kept watching videos of it because i was like this is adorable i'm just like i feel like they're like the original like chip and joanna that type of thing where you're like Wow, like, so country, you know, so back country, town, so like, family so much, oriented, like, you know, chemistry or whatever, 
and then you're like, wow, they must be like this all the time. And like, they're probably not. They like, are not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was say, there's gotta be something yeah, not different in like than a, what's on stage. Not in a terrible way, but they're just like, they're performers. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they're performing this relationship. They have a child together named Rebecca Carleen Smith, who professionally goes by Carleen Carter mm. in her life now. That's a she, good name. Yeah. And she's the, the oldest daughter of June Carter Cash. So mm-hmm. she's heavily featured in the documentary. She had a lot to say. Mm. So. The idea in Nashville and frankly America at the time is that you got married and you stopped working and especially in the country world, you got a gingham dress and you settled down Mm -hmm. and you raised your kids. And that's the idea that Carl had Mm. that it was going to happen with his wife. And he didn't mind if she was performing on the Opry, but June wanted to travel and perform outside of that. She Mm -hmm. was a superstar in her own right and didn't want to just be like tied to this one show. Mm -hmm. So three years into their marriage, they divorced. And I didn't mention this earlier, but June is super religious, like extraordinarily religious. And in the fifties, this couple getting a divorce was a huge scandal. Massive. They still perform together on the Opry and after their divorce Mm -hmm. and have wonderful stage banter. I watched it and was like, I can't believe that they're divorced. But Carlene commented and she said to her dad, like later in life, like you loved each other so much like how did it end and carl smith said your mama never loved me she loved the idea of me and i think that he yeah. felt the same way yeah he yeah. loved the idea of her the idea of a wife and kids but not literally her right like <laughs> did he say it goes both ways or like, he didn't okay. i'm saying that because he it did definitely that. goes both yeah ways. you know what i'm saying because like that i don't know anything about this man but like <laughs> But it kind of feels like he's blaming her for leaving this split. Yeah. And it's like, well, like you should also maybe take a look at your own situation. Right. See what you were expecting. You're trying her. to tie somebody down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she needs some independence, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So she takes her daughter and goes to New York City. <gasps> This is not something single women did in the 50s. Single mothers, to say the least. Mm -hmm. She took her baby. She went to New York. She rented an apartment. And she started being trained at the Playhouse as an actress. Really? Yeah. She's studying all week, doing tests, doing stage performances, trying to become an actress, and then flying home on the weekends to perform in the Grand Old Opry. On propeller planes. There aren't jets, Katie. She is like flying home on rickety pieces of shit to perform at the Opry and then flying back to New York to do school. And what that's like, is the Opry in Nashville? Yeah. Okay, so that's Nashville to Manhattan. Yeah. Back and forth, back and forth. Every week, twice a week. No, thank you. Yeah, honestly. not work out well for Buddy Holly. I don't know how she's doing this. She did fine because she ends up on Gunsmoke. (gasps) She's acting on Gunsmoke. Also, while she's in New York, she picks up some friends, notably Elvis Presley, <laughs> who she calls Jimmy Dean. Calm down. Can I? <laughs> <All right. laughs> and Tennessee Williams. Now, okay. <laughs> okay. speak of the devil. Can I <laughs> ask you a question? Sure. Do You might not know the answer. I don't. <laughs> Is the 
is Jimmy Dean a real person that the sausage was named after and she's calling him Jimmy Dean as like a country bumpkin joke? No, she was she was close with James Dean. I don't know James if it's a joke Dean. that she called him Jimmy. I think people in real life probably called him Jimmy. Now, who is the sausage named after? No idea. Okay. Because James Dean is like the hot young actor actor yes but i don't think the sausage has anything to do with him no i don't think so either his name was clickable on wikipedia james dean but in the documentary they were calling him jimmy dean so she's nicknaming elvis jimmy dean no she's friends with elvis and james dean both both (laughs) these people I conflated the two. I thought you were like, and she was close with Elvis, and she called him Jimmy Dean. And no. I was like, that's weird. Why was she calling Elvis Jimmy Dean? <laughs> she may have had sex with Elvis, honestly. Now, she was really religious, so I don't think she did, because also she was very ashamed that she got a divorce. But mm. she definitely, anytime her kids asked her about Elvis, got, like, pink in the face. <sighs> and, like, I bet they smooched at least. Yeah, they had to, they had to do a little bit of, like, yeah. canoodling. Yeah. For sure. I think so. Yeah. Elv- Come on, it's Elvis. She keeps going next. It's Jimmy Dean. <laughs> <laughs> it's Jimmy Dean King. We'll just make up names now. Doesn't matter. Okay, I'm really glad we settled that, because I was, like, I didn't realize you were talking about two different people. Yeah, James okay. Dean, Elvis, and Tennessee Williams. And Tennessee She's friends Williams. with these people. She's also okay. friends with, like, Loretta Lynn. She's I mean, I would imagine. The whole crew. The whole crew. Yeah. So she's in New York City with the best of them. But all of that is about to slip away um, because she's going back and forth, back and forth. And she comes home one weekend and realizes she's pregnant and single and has a baby. Okay, she, so she was canoodling. Absolutely. Okay. But with this guy named Edwin Rip Nix. So Rip Nix is what he goes by. He has nothing to do with show business. Yeah. He is a former football player, a police officer, definitely cute. They have a baby together named Rosie, who uh, very unfortunately dies at the age of 45 for accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. (gasps) So sad. But she is kind of now like has to leave her New York fantasies behind because Mm -hmm. she's now has two kids by two different men with two marriages. And it's still like the 1950s. Like people are not fine with that you know and yeah. like you did have she to marry the second guy she did okay. as soon as she found out she's pregnant oh terrible yeah so a lot's going on there i didn't even i assumed that her and johnny had been together like forever forever well I'm, he's about to swoop in okay okay so she is in this second marriage which she's happy with and making work and they're not struggling like She's definitely the breadwinner, mm-hmm. and sometimes he's unemployed, mm-hmm. um, and she's doing performances around her hometown, mm-hmm. so she's, like, performing at grocery stores and, like, doing mm-hmm. these things, mm-hmm. and she's in the Grand Old Opry, but she's making enough money to make ends meet, to have two kids, mm-hmm. you know, and a husband that doesn't work sometimes. So, the Grand Old Opry, she's there one day, and this guy comes in, hello, I'm Johnny Cash, you know, <laughs> as he does, as he does, and she's like... Yes, I know who you are. For, for he's already famous. He's already famous, but she mostly knows who he is because Elvis Presley used to tune his guitar to Cry, 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 oh. which is a Johnny Cash song. Mm-hmm. But Johnny Cash isn't quite Elvis level yet. Okay. He's, like, going to get there. Okay. Uh, and she's like, uh, hi, I'm June Carter. And he just goes, I know. <laughs> I, I know. Because he was a poor, like, 
son of the soil in mm-hmm. Arkansas, grew up with nothing, which means the radio is what he had. Mm. And this girl's voice he had been hearing for his entire life. And he just kept thinking, like, one day I'm going to get that girl's autograph. <gasps> That's so cute. It's freaking adorable. So he shows up at the Grand Old Opry. He's married. He has four kids. Oh, my She's gosh. married. She has two kids. Wait, and how, what is the age gap between them? So it's not a lot. Oh, good. They're only a couple years apart. Okay. So he's got these four kids with Uh this woman he's been with for a long time. Mm -hmm. She's with her second husband, and she's got two kids. Mm -hmm. And they, he, he's very innocently like, I want you to work with me. I want you to come travel with me. Your family, her fa- the Carter yeah. family mm-hmm. as a country singing group is going to now like open for Johnny, who's like slowly becoming a superstar. Mm-hmm. So June starts traveling with him. They're opening in cities around the country, around the world even. Mm-hmm. She's proud of him. He's proud of her. She's trying to keep him off pills because he's sliding down the rock star lane. He's getting kind of addicted and she's helping him. Uh So there's this codependence happening. One day she wakes up on tour and she's like, shit, I'm falling in love with Johnny Cash. She doesn't want to be in love with Johnny Cash. Mm. She doesn't want to hurt his wife. She doesn't want to hurt her husband. She doesn't want to tear their children out of these happy families, which they are. Mm -hmm. They are. But she was in love with him. And every night, June sat up in so much pain. She was embarrassed to have one divorce. So to create two. And then like a third one on Johnny's behalf. Right. That's like it's she's feeling really terrible mm-hmm. so in those moments she scrolled down a song about their relationship called ring of fire <laughs> and it is th- arguably one of johnny cash's most favorite oh, songs yeah. along with like hurts mm-hmm. and things like that but it is the song of her feeling like she's going to burn in hell because mm-hmm. she loves him yeah. which oh is so gosh. sad I do want to put a little note in here. When Johnny recorded the song, the family was singing as backup and he's got the trumpets and all this stuff. But her original recording is a lot more raw. So if you want to go back and hear that, you absolutely can. But Johnny's first wife in her um, autobiography, she disputes that June wrote it at all. She says that she didn't write it, that somebody else wrote it and felt bad for June and gave her. But that might just be a little bitter. But I I think, like, the first wife and the four daughters, some of them were in the documentary about June, and they were very complimentary of her. So I don't think it's a long-lasting bitter thing. I think that it might have been bitter at the beginning because Johnny's first wife has her heart broken. She, like, helped this man grow from the ground up and then is left for this other superstar. So, you know, that that is very painful. But the thing is, June got divorced. And she didn't tell anyone on tour she got divorced. She didn't even tell Johnny. Wow. She was ashamed of it, and she wanted to just be divorced for a while. Eventually, they find out, and she's like, Johnny, here's the thing. I am not going to even consider being with you until you're clean for six months. Wow. Not going to do it. Yeah. So he goes and starts living with her parents, who, like, bring him God and faith and love and like take care of him um 
And after he gets really clean and after six months of being clean, they go to this onstage performance and he proposes to her on stage mm. in front of like all these fans. And oh she's like, God. well, the show must go on. <laughs> like, I have to say yes and keep going. So she does. And then it becomes a Brady Bunch situation. She's got two kids. He's got four kids. They're all kind of living around America together the as they like, travel. Some are way, way older. Some are way, way younger. And she's like in her 40s. She's like, this is great. Whatever. Life goes on. And then she got pregnant. Oh. So her and Johnny have a baby together, a little boy. And they had both had all girls. Really? So, so this Johnny had all girls? I four girls. That. She had two girls. <gasps> and now they have a boy together. What are they naming? Let Johnny me. Jr. It's like, it's like <laughs> Johnny... It's like Carter Johnny Cash or yeah. something. It's like <laughs> it, it conflates both of their names. It's yeah. like crazy. So um, people really like because Johnny Cash is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Ring of Fire is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. His performances are getting bigger. And they start talking to June and they're like, um, if you hadn't have married Johnny, you'd be a bigger star. And she's like, you know what? Where he goes, I go. Yeah. And this is the first time she changes her last name. Really? She didn't change her name for the first two husbands, but she starts professionally going by June Carter Cash. You know what's interesting, too, is, like, it's not like she was, I mean, she was Mm well-known, but not, like, a superstar, Mm -mm. you know? So, I don't know. Like, that's really interesting. What would have happened if she hadn't have married Johnny? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I feel like they and I'm not just saying that, like, you know, she only got super famous because of him. I'm saying that, like, they both helped each other reach the level of stardom that they had. I think that I think that he would have been as famous without her. I think he would have sputtered out due to drug addiction without her. She was his lifeline. Yeah. Um, And I also think that, like, she might have gone the way of, like, an Alison Krauss, who's, like, very famous in the bluegrass industry, but Mm -hmm. only in that industry. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, now June Carter Cash is much bigger because Mm -hmm. she was more, like, pop acceptable Mm -hmm. because of Johnny Cash. Mm -hmm. So um, everybody openly says Johnny was not Johnny without her, Mm -hmm. even he says that he mm. knew it and talks about it. So mm. they are traveling together with their son. And for the first several years of their marriage, they never leave each other's side. Ugh. Like if she's like, I'm going to the grocery store, he goes with her. They go together to everything. And um, in her documentary, somebody commented, it all comes back to the matriarch. And any man that says different is lying his ass off. <laughs> <laughs> like she is the Johnny yeah. Cash, like guiding mm-hmm. post. So for the first 10 or 12 years of their marriage, they're doing great. They're never apart. Drugs are not a problem. And then Johnny Cash has an issue. Um, he gets in the 80s back into his drug habit. And I think it has a lot to do with in the 80s, his form of music isn't as popular anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has to reckon with the fact that like if you – you can't save someone if they don't want to save themselves. And pills is a big issue for him. There's other issues. But she was ruthless with cutting people out of his life. Mm-hmm. If people came in and she was like, you're no good for my husband, she would get rid of them immediately. But one morning, her, their son, John Carter Cash, comes in and finds their dad. And he's like really hot to the touch and not oh. breathing. So they put him in a bathtub and get him to wake up. But he's incoherent. So they take him to the Betty Ford Center and um, 
she is so forgiving. Like June just says it's really hard to be Johnny Cash. Like it is hard to deal with this. And she gets educated for the first time in what's called codependency where she is learning how to they do this at the Betty Ford Clinic teach you how to be a partner of somebody who's an addict and they also give you time to play they give you kites and play-doh because you spend so much time being what they called a super Mm grown-up so june is always on alert for johnny so she never gets time to like just have fun because she's being everything for this one person i mean this hits me very hard very hard at home for you obviously have a similar situation it is so hard because like you feel like you're not allowed to like break down and experience your emotions because you're like well what could that do to like them to set them off and like cause them to like slip up or like it's like you're monitoring your behavior and theirs at all times right it is exhausting it is and i had no idea that these types of programs existed no i didn't know either it's the first ford center but like it's the first time i'd heard of like codependency education to like help people who are partners of former addicts yeah i was like that's an amazing thing that i wish more people knew about yeah i've never heard of that and it would be like super helpful to be like what things am i doing are helping and what things are hindering is the tough love approach working or just do I need to take a softer approach? And right. obviously it goes person by person, but like it can feel like you're like, okay, this is making progress. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh wait, this isn't, you know? And it's so hard. I think it like, also gives you somebody to just like talk with and yeah. cry with and be emotional with and be angry with mm-hmm. without feeling like you're harming your partner or possibly putting them in a precarious situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was a really cool thing that she did to try to like help Johnny so that she could help herself. You know, yeah. she's trying to mm-hmm. be better for herself and he gets clean again because I think the two of them bought into the myth that they were selling this. Like, yeah. and I, sometimes I don't know if it was a myth, like they were so in love on stage yeah. and I think they were so in love in person, but yeah. they bought into it and they were like, we're going to sell it. Yeah. Well, because it's like the first marriage. Like, I don't know if she bought into the, no. you know, she did. She was like, this is an onstage persona and that's it. And this I was going to say that. Yeah. She could have mm-hmm. bought into Carl, mm-hmm. but she didn't. No. She bought into Johnny. Interesting. So I want to pause a sec on the relationship because June, as you said, is a singer and songwriter in her own right. She's mm-hmm. an author. She's a dancer. She's an actress. She's a comedian. She's a philanthropist. She's like mm-hmm. giving money to tons of people. She's going and monitoring humanitarian rights in Jamaica. I told you she studied acting. She was in the movie The Apostle. She was in Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman for five <laughs> years. She was on Gunsmoke. She was in Murder in Coweta County. Like, she is in a lot of mm-hmm. movies and television shows. But in the 80s, like I said, when Johnny got sick again, their label is, like, dropping them because they Ugh. were going from performing in front of 60,000 people to performing in front of 300 Ooh, people. Yeah. So... She kind of works out with him, this group called the Highwaymen, and they perform for 10 years together. And it's like him and Willie Nelson and like these other famous country guys. And it's these four country guys all performing together. Um, But the problem is like then June has to kind of take the back seat. You know, she has to just watch her husband perform with these three other men when she's like he always used to perform with me. Yeah. So she's becoming like less and less of a star while he's becoming the piece of Americana that we had previously talked about. 
But uh, that doesn't mean that she was laying down and doing nothing. As a singer, she did have a solo career even before Johnny was around. Her first notable studio performances were with Johnny before they were even married. Like they Mm -hmm. were doing compilations with Bob Dylan and stuff Mm -hmm. and she's on the Johnny Cash show and they're not even married yet. Her first album was called Appalachian Pride and that's her only album that Johnny is not on. Okay. Her second album and this is her second album ever she's 70 years old and she is shopping around this album called Press On and People won't do it. They're like, nobody wants to hear you. Nobody wants to hear this old country shit. Like, you're, like, past due. So this woman named Vicki Hamilton starts her own recording label so that she can, like, make sure that June Carter Cash gets this album out. Her kids sing on it. She sings on it. Her kids sing with her the songs that she sang with her mom. Wow. So it's very beautiful. Johnny sings back up to her after she was back up to him for, so long. for all of those years. Um, and she won a Grammy. <gasps> That's so exciting. She's in her 70s and she Ugh. wins a Grammy. And I know like sometimes people are like, oh, okay, a Grammy. They give them away a dime a dozen. But this is her first yeah. Grammy. And she's been in the music business since so birth. long. And she's seen Johnny perform and get so many Grammys Mm -hmm. on songs that she wrote or performed background on. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then her third studio album is called Wildfire, but her which won two Grammys, but her son put it out after she passed, and it was songs of, like, uh, previously unreleased songs of her and Johnny and, like, all this cool Mm -hmm. family stuff that, like, we may have never heard of if her son decided not to do that in the end of their lives johnny and june loved each other more than they did their whole lives so like when you see the love and walk the line it's not even close to the love they had in their 70s for each Mm -hmm. other um and they were great friends to top it off uh she says i worked my whole life more than he did but you'd never know it (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking believe it. And then also in the video, people talked about her the way that my grandmother used to say, don't ever let moss grow on your feet. My Mary Dell and one of her daughters said that about her. Like she never let moss grow on her feet. And it must be like an Appalachian, like Virginia thing, because it's like, don't stand still. Like keep going, keep Mm -hmm. going, which like a lot of strong women just have to do. Yeah. One of her final on-screen appearances was a non-speaking appearance in the music video for her husband's single, Hurt. And one of her last public appearances was April 7th, 2003 at the Flameworthy Award Program to accept an achievement for her husband because he was sick and couldn't come. That's the thing. Johnny had been sick for 10 years in the early 2000s. He was really falling apart. But then... June was diagnosed with a leaky heart valve and doctors were like, oh, we'll do a replacement surgery. There's a really easy solution. It's fine. However, last year, this is last year, um, a whole bunch of complications arose and over the next few days, she fell apart. Mm. And at the age of 73, June Carter Cash died in May of 2003, not last year, 10 years ago. That'd be like 20 years ago. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, 
I was like, wait, Agnes died at like 90. Yeah, no way. <laughs> they were like such similar. <laughs> this is me typing 2023, <laughs> but then I was like, no, that says 2003. Yeah, no, no, no. 20 years ago okay. when I was in fucking high school, <laughs> June Carter Cash died at the age of 73. She was surrounded by family, including her husband of 35 years. They, it's her third husband, but she'd been married for 35 years. And it was sudden and shocking because he was the one that was sick. And her yeah. family was left feeling like the tent pole holding up the family was mm-hmm. gone. So that same year, Country Music Television released her as part of the list of the 40 greatest women in country music. Obviously, she's played by Reese Witherspoon two years later in a movie about Johnny Cash and her relationship. Um, And it focuses on the 13 years that they met up until he proposes to her on stage. Mm. So it's that very small tidbit Mm -hmm. of their lives. Jewel also portrayed, uh, portrayed her in a television movie called Ring of Fire that came out in 2013. At her funeral, her daughter came up and said, if being a wife was a corporation, June would have been the CEO. It was her most treasured role. Everybody remarked at how agonizing it was to watch Johnny at that funeral. He lasted only four months without her. He died four months later. And before he went, he said, I love June Carter. She was an angel. I am not. And that is the story of June Carter Cash. Isn't that beautiful? It's heartbreaking. The videos of him at this funeral, just like sitting in complete shock. Like he didn't know what to do without her. He's so broken. Oh, God, that really got me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really hard one. I'm like crying the whole time I'm doing the research because it really is. This is the it's such an iconic love story. Well, and like again, like. It t- hits home. It hits home because it is, it's so much work. And I, it's, and it, you have, I bet June had a lot of people telling her, like, you know, like, anybody in this situation, you know, like, oh, just like, just leave. Just like, it, it, but it's too like, much. It's too know, much. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that there's good stuff. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's so hard because, like, it does feel like the world is telling you, like, just, give up and it's like but like you know that it's better than they realize it is you yeah. know what I'm saying yeah. it's so hard and like <sighs> it's difficult he, he loved her so so much, much. it was and she loved him so like that's really i don't know like it's a devastating kind of love oh You're yeah like, oh my god and and they the thing is they weren't like toxic to each other yeah. they were just mm-hmm. living a hard life and yeah. that's okay mm-hmm. like it's okay when you have to help your partner through something hard yeah. as long as you're not like purposefully hurting that yeah. person right. i um at at one point in the document uh documentary willie nelson was being interviewed and he said oh june carter cash she was tough you had to be tough to be married to Johnny Cash. And it's like, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, it's like even other people in the music industry who are notoriously hard to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> like knew yeah. like she was tough as nails, this woman. Yeah. And that's amazing. That is amazing. All right. You ready well, to talk about these ladies yes. together? In a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. All right. So it's so interesting to me that they grew up in the same time period. I know. Um, but they were in very different worlds 
entertaining stereotypes of those worlds oh, which i thought was yeah. so interesting i was like, like is nashville paris in this situation it is <laughs> it's like agnes varda her films are so stereotypical french artsy films but it's because she started it yeah. like like these girls are the they are the stamps of the stereotype. And oh, like yeah. June was the same way. It's like people literally wrote country songs using her family's riffs. Like that's so fascinating to me that like they're existing in these stereotypes of American and French, but they like I found it recently that I stereotype is the name of the like plate that you would press. I told you that last week. You t- <laughs> <laughs> on this show. I love us so much. I was like, I heard it somewhere. Maybe it was on the office lady. Well, I will tell you this. This is crazy because earlier today I was telling you a story and three times I stopped and I said, maybe I didn't tell you this. Maybe I told you this. Maybe I didn't tell you this. Maybe I told Marjorie this. And I like kept saying it and you're like, Allie, just tell me the fucking story. I can't remember. I can't. I, who Anything. knows? We just talk to each other constantly. Um, it's too much talking. I cannot believe you told me that. <laughs> I can't believe I told you that. Honestly. All the time. A but yes, time yes, they, they are the stereotypes of France, French, like Parisian film. Yes. And like a very country, country Nashville yes. superstar. Uh, I absolutely adored that. And I also loved that, like, they both ended up at these like iconic award shows because yeah. of it. But very late in life. Yeah. It was like they're th- because you create the system you're not going to win an award the first time yeah. you have to wait till everybody else does it and then you redo it better yep. and then they're like oh right that's why you were so good and yep. you get a grammy and you're at the academy awards mm-hmm. and you are the person who made it happen to begin with yeah and agnes did i didn't i literally couldn't get into like all the awards she won later in life how for, can like, you her how impact can you? on right. film um, but I think it's because they both just like stayed the steady course. Mm-hmm. It's like Agnes did a lot of you know flip flopping in like the very beginning when she's in her twenties, and then when she's when she gets on film, she fucking stays on it. Yeah, and it is just this like steady like I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna express myself here, I'm gonna do it that way. And June was the same way of like no matter what how the world was changing around them they were just staying so steady in like their careers and what they did because they knew that they did it well right you know what i'm saying i don't think they i don't think they ever doubted their abilities (laughs) no and i think that they didn't doubt themselves so much that they ended up with their own productions they're like at the end i'm gonna do my own album i'm gonna do my own production company because Mm -hmm. i know this is right and Mm -hmm. i know that like yes the world has moved around me but this is the actual thing that makes it grow it was like watering the seeds of their yeah. own industry mm-hmm. and maybe they weren't technically the best at what they were doing but they both had that like artistic like vision and spark and determination to make their careers like what they were they were superstars in their own right which i think is fascinating and they were both like the grandmothers of the industry. Yes. And I, I would say that like possibly June's mother was the grandmother mm-hmm. of the industry. But I think that 
they left their mark because they were like these huge matriarchal mm-hmm. figures and they both had very famous people commenting on them like yeah. M. Night Shyamalan has something to say about Agnes Willie Nelson has something to say about June Carter yep. they are good enough to impact other people who have become famous which only means that you're a building block in the success of other people oh, yeah which is Absolutely. incredible and I think relationships are a funny thing because you would think that like the artsy French filmmaker would have the like crazy wild relationships. And really she was just like, I was married to the same guy for a long time. And like, that was it. We were both filmmakers. And so she's making films about like the struggles of relationships. And maybe she did struggle in her relationship. We don't really know, but you know, she's making films about, the realities of being in relationship and June is living in it and portraying a more positive experience on stage, you know? And I think that's very interesting, kind of like the juxtaposition of those two things. And, but I think there is, it makes me realize that with every single relationship, there is a performative element and the truth behind it. Oh yes. And especially like with, social media nowadays yeah. it's like you see a relationship you're like man that is nuts yeah. <laughs> like whatever's going on there it's <laughs> crazy but ultimately we never know what's going on behind no. the curtain which is why I, I secretly love crazy people from my past who are on facebook and overshare because <laughs> i love to know <laughs> hi it's me <laughs> i'm the problem it's me so Anyways, but yeah, two really interesting, like, just, like, self-made women. I love it. These these ladies were a blast and, like, really have impacted the industries that they decided to work in. Yeah, very old. I love it. Jinx. Who would you like to toast this evening? Uh, I want to toast partners. I, I, I think that no matter what relationship you're in, one person is always going to kind of be the shining star of the relationship. And one person is always going to be like the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it shows up in different ways. I know like in, in my r- relationship, I do a ton of behind the scenes mm-hmm. work constantly. And my husband has a very high, high profile job and is like very high risk highly respected and it's like and i'm a teacher (laughs) (laughs) it is weird seeing him on linkedin and he's like at a podium giving a Uh, who does he think he constantly and he and he only posts on linkedin and he'll post like selfies and shit and i'm like you don't post any of that on your regular (laughs) social media how are other people supposed to know and he's like i don't get i'm just i'm toasting partners because i'm a bitter ass partner sometimes and june handled it Really well, really well being like a bitter behind the scenes partner yeah. shit okay and also i don't care how fucking strong you are you have a right to be bitter sometimes <laughs> like i think every strong woman in a relationship has a right to that like because i get bitter sometimes yeah like <laughs> obviously because <laughs> i've ex- been expressing you um, me? <laughs> what? anyways um i'm gonna toast women who are true originals like i think it's so cool that she was agnes is doing these things in film that were so new that that's why i call the cocktail pre-wave because she was before any of the thing like the big boys who thought they were doing it first so (sighs) i love true originals yes 
an ode to be without imposter syndrome for <laughs> one second in your life. Is one a, a feet. One moment. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So Netflix just recently like re-released a weird season of Project Runway. <laughs> it doesn't have Heidi Klum. It doesn't have Tim Gunn. But uh, when producer is away, which is all the time, I watch like shows that he doesn't want to watch mm-hmm. with my girls, my daughters. And they have no perception of Heidi Klum or Tim Gunn, much like Agnes, who didn't watch any movies and then made movies. So they don't know what it used to be. And mm-hmm. I'm loving watching it with them because yeah. it's very cute. I like reality competition shows where they are doing something artistic that like I can't do. I love British Bake Off. I mm-hmm. love Project Runway. I love America's Next Top Model. I yeah. think they're very nuanced and interesting. And I always learn something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that fabric was yeah. hard to sew with. <laughs> wow when i end up doing that yeah i love that basting stitch (laughs) exactly (laughs) so i'm just really enjoying it with my kids and i think they like it too um i am going to recommend something i was actually talking about in the beginning and that is taking a walk around ikea your local ikea and i apologize if there's not one around you we have one in white marsh join us oh it's the best I just like, especially during the winter when like it's so cold outside and like I know like my house is cold and sometimes I just need a break. And Ikea is great because at if you're at Target or something, you'll always find something to buy. Ikea, I rarely buy anything nowadays. I'm just walking around and like enjoying the little areas. And I know that's like very cliche or whatever to like, you know, go to Ikea, but like It is, and it's big, and sometimes you do look at something, and you're like, you know what, I do need a new pasta strainer, (laughs) and it's, you know, not that expensive, so it's like, I would really recommend it, it's a nice place to just, like, walk, clear your mind, and I firmly believe that the employees are encouraged to not talk to you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, there's a woman who approached me one day, and I never saw her again. I was shocked when she approached Fired? Me. I think she was fired. Fired. And let me tell you, I, ha- I went to Bath and Body Works right afterwards, and it was too much. They swarm you. They swarm you. Do you need help? Do you need help? Do you need help? Are you in here looking for a particular scent? And I'm like, you know what? I am, and I know you don't fucking have it because it's a seasonal one, you bitch. Right. So, like, no, you can't help me because I've been in here before. And you know what? I left there without anything, too, because they didn't have anything that I liked. Also, it's like getting rid of the scent. I honestly don't need help because your store's color coded. So, like, yeah, shut the fuck up. I'm fine. (laughs) I'm I'm a full adult. I'm literate. She's doing her job. (laughs) And I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bath and Body Um, Works employees. But, but yeah, it's like if you want to be totally unbothered. Right. Just. Go to Ikea. Yeah. Very relaxing. It is nice. So anyways, thank you for joining us. And if you would like to hang out with us a little bit more, you can join our Patreon. And today we are going to be talking about what we would like to be left at our grave sites, which I'm very excited to talk about. How positive of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, and other than that, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and all the things. We're posting cocktail recipes and photos and fun women's history facts. And if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would also be incredible. And if you do, we'll give you a shout out on the show. So hang out with us, stay in touch, and never forget that well-behaved women absolutely don't start their own production companies. (laughs) And they rarely make history. Goodbye.
to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.